Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Morning, rest. How are you? Um, really, really great to be here today. Um, really great message today. At least it was for me. Um, I hope that, my hope is that at the end of this service, that you will take something with you that hopefully changes your life. Uh, I really hope that. Uh, but first, uh, yesterday, we had a bunch of volunteers show up to get some work done around the church, and I just want to thank you. Um, I was working the message yesterday. I couldn't be here, and I will tell you, I would gladly trade <laughs> being here today so I could help yesterday, but um, a lot fell to me, and I'm sorry. I really wanted to be here for that, but anyway, thank you. So let's get started. So I knew, this, I knew this patient before she died. It was 10 years ago. She was sick at the time, but she didn't want to admit it. There was only a glimmer of hope at best, but that hope would become a reality only with radical change. She wasn't nearly ready for that change. Indeed, she was highly resistant to any change. Even though she was very sick, even though she was dying, I told her the news bluntly, you are dying. I hope I said those words with some compassion. I did feel badly sharing the news, but it was the only way that I could see to get her attention. I even told her that at best, she had five years to live. At the time I said those words, I don't even really think that I was optimistic. I would not have been surprised if she died within the year. But she was not only in denial, she was in angry denial. I'll show you, she said. I'll prove you wrong. I am not dying. Her words were fierce, defiant, and angry. It was time for me to leave. I had done all that I could. I left. I was not angry. I was sad, very sad. Now, to her credit, she was right up to a point. She did not die in five years. She proved resilient and survived another 10. But her last decade, though she was technically alive, she was filled with pain, with sickness and despair. I'm not sure her longer-term survival was a good thing, she never got better. She slowly and painfully deteriorated, and she died. 
She was a church. She was out of focus. So why the story? So this is an actual account by Thomas Rayner of a real church. He was looking at this church that had lost its vision. He was looking at a church that had abandoned its purpose. He was looking at a church that was out of focus. So we, as the body of Christ, as a church, must realize that a trap has been set. And it's been set for every church. It's a trap of false vision. It is a trap of... um, False purpose and false focus. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Churches and other ministries may start with the best of intentions. I've seen it. Time passes. Intentions become traditions. Traditions become religion. Religion becomes selfishness. And selfishness brings death every single time. Go home and read 2 Corinthians 3. And it is sad that the church, not all, but it's sad that the church does this when Jesus says, man, I came to give you life. We take the life that he gives us and we sit on it. We hide it and we keep it to ourselves when we were meant to share it. This is the reason for the story. It brings focus to our purpose. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission, hear me. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, as you go, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, this is the fourth and final week of this Summer Sunday series. We began with Cody speaking on the scoop of clarity. Planting a church requires a plan. And then we had John with the melting urgency. Planting a church requires urgency. And then Pastor A.B. last week, the bite of belief. Planting a church requires faith. And then this week, it's the taste of transformation. Planting a church requires Jesus. Eyes like Jesus and people chasing after Jesus. So it's fun to look at, to talk about ice cream. It's true with consequence. Thank you, Cody. But it's significantly better to eat one for yourself. We can describe to you the how, the why, and the where of what it takes, of what it tastes like to follow God in faith, but it is significantly better to be transformed yourself. So if you've ever wondered why rest is more than just another church or how God is asking you to partner with him to build his kingdom, then you are in the right place. Alongside some exciting vision casting for where we are going as a body, we're inviting you to become a part and savor the delight of following the leading of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you first for you. I want to thank you for your work, for your work in us and for your work here at rest. I want to thank you for the people that you brought here. 
for us to get shoulder to shoulder with and to meet this challenge together. God, I want to thank you for the word uh, that you've given. I want to thank you for what you have shown me this weekend. I'm forever grateful for that. God, I pray that you through me would speak these things. And I also pray that you would cause our enemy uh, to flee from here so that the words that are spoken uh, might fall on open ears and soft hearts. God, use the word today to change us, to give us vision, to give us purpose. God, I thank you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So, I was really kind of meditating all week on, on what I was going to say. And um, yesterday morning, as, as I'm sitting down, and, and um, I mean, I already had an idea of what I wanted to say, but as I was sitting down, like, like I, I see this thing, um, and it's like super cool. Uh, and um, I was just really digesting like this task that is before us and I'm starting to see this pattern because I'm thinking about the people that will be receiving this message and it's not just for the sake of delivering a message but for a a place of of honest care right Um, a place where we want to to be a light in the darkness but so I, I see this pattern and it's this copy and paste process and it's it's Amazing. But this process is in the life of a person. And, and this process is also in the life of the church. And so this process is going to be the outline of today's message. And it has seven phases. And each of these involves a choice. Listen, like you, me, we have a choice to follow in faith or to remain stagnant, complacent, idle, and selfish. But these are the phases. The first one is remedy. So he creates, he, God, Jesus, creates a remedy before there's a disease. Move to the next phase, this pursuit, this reckless pursuit of God pursuing you, despite constant rejection, salvation, Like, he saves you, he has you, and there's no turning back. Next, from salvation, we move to vision and we move to purpose. He gives you both vision and he gives you purpose. And then provision. Once you're his, he provides for you all that you need exactly when you need it. And then there's warfare. He fights for you. And as you focus on him and you step out in faith. And then finally, the seventh is remedy repeat. So the first phase, he creates a a remedy before the disease. And then now that this this process, this cycle comes to fruition, it's remedy repeat. So he now creates a remedy for the next person using you that was at the beginning of this process. So he uses you to be the remedy for someone before they even had the disease which you'll see later. So, so interestingly enough, when, when all of these kind of things are being put together, like there's this image that I saw. 
And through this image, and you can go ahead and throw it up, like everything that we are going to be talking about stemmed from this. Everything. And it could not have come at a better time. It made me think, not about Jesus' pursuit of me, the prodigal son, but the pursuit of all of us. I mean, really, if you think about it, if you are sitting here today, there is someone in your life that God has used to make that change in you, and I could almost guarantee you that person was part of the church. Not this church, not that church, but the church. I can guarantee you that. But we'll, we'll talk about this image a little more. Uh, John 14, 12. We see Jesus um, working like, like in his people. But in John 14, 12, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is saying, listen, guys, listen, gals. He's like, like, if I leave this place, like all of these works that you see me doing, you'll be able to do greater. I mean, God himself, God in the flesh said that we, mankind, would be able to do better works than him. But Jesus knew something. He knew after the crucifixion and the resurrection, when he returned, God the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus was one man while he was on the earth in one place doing ministry right there. But he knew that if he left, God the Holy Spirit would come and dwell inside all of us so that Jesus through us could do ministry all over the globe. This is what he's saying in John 14. This is our purpose to reach and not only to reach but to teach. So as we progress through the message, like, let the image of Jesus running after the lamb, like, resonate in your mind. Let it burn in your heart. The image of the lost one, the wayward one, the image of the pursuit of the one. So I mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to say it again. Um, churches and ministries start with the best of intentions. Time passes, intentions become tradition, tradition becomes religion, religion becomes selfishness, and selfishness kills. So, like, like, so what happens? Like, like, what causes this? Because I can tell you, like, I've been involved in it. Like, I had the purest of intentions. But your sight gets out of focus. Our vision becomes blurry, and we cannot see the full picture. We can't see the purpose of what we're called to do. Jesus is not the one who changed. We did. We did. So let's get to it. The main point of today is bring the taste of transformation back into focus. As we dissect the process of the gospel, God opened our eyes to see. So again, there are seven phases to this process. Each involves a choice. You, me, we, we have the choice to either follow in faith or to remain stagnant, complacent, idle, and selfish. Phase one, remedy. So God creates Adam and Eve, perfect, sinless, in his image. He has given dominion over 
everything, over all of God's creation, God gives Adam dominion over it. With one exception. Like, he's free to do anything he wants, with one exception. Like, this tree right here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like, don't eat from it. You can do anything else that you want. We don't even make it one generation before we fail. Uh, and, and I had to look this up yesterday. It's kind of funny. Not really, but it is. So I looked up how many chapters there are in both the Old and New Testaments. There are 1,189 chapters total. Like, dude, we made it to chapter two. <laughs> chapter two. Like, we didn't even make it to chapter three. Not even the beginning of chapter three. Chapter two, dude. Um, I'm just like, the freaking figures. So, so Eve is deceived. Adam knows better. And they eat from the tree. So, so through this one man's disobedience, like sin enters. And death is brought by sin. And death and separation come along with it. And so now man has this disease known as sin. This disease has a penalty of permanent death. Hear me. Permanent death is eternal life described as eternal death. Like you will be living apart from Christ. You will live eternal death apart from him. There's one antidote. There's one remedy. The remedy is this, a sinless life given in place of a sinful life. First Peter 1. Turn with me if you've got your Bibles. If not, follow on the screen. So again, this phase is remedy. For God creates a remedy before there is a disease. First Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And I really like the way the New Living Translation puts verse 20. So God... The Father chose him, Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Revelation 13, 7 and 8, turn with me. Again, New Living Translation, I just, I just like the way it puts this together. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names was not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb, hear me people, who was slaughtered before the world was made. So before Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, before God made Adam and Adam fell, God had already created a remedy. So this life process in a person, which is also the life process in a church, was started before that life began.
He creates a remedy before there is a disease. Bring the taste of transformation back into focus. Phase two. Pursuit. God pursued us first. God made the first move. He died for us when we hated him. He died for us when we were his enemy. So we have this book uh, that contains the story, amongst others, of reckless pursuit. And it begins with Israel in the time of the judges. Over and over, Israel would cheat on God who was her husband by worshiping false gods. And then, like, through this, oppression would come upon her, and it would leave her with nowhere else to turn, so she would turn back to God. And he, a loving husband, would answer every single time and deliver her. And this vicious cycle continued over and over. Every time she chose unfaithfulness, she cried out to God, and every time, God faithfully answers. Then you usher in the time of the kings. Israel at that time was the only nation without one. She cried out to God, God, we want a king. We want to be just like everybody else. And, and he says, but, but, but I'm your king. Like, no, 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 no. no we, we want a man king. And he tried to talk her out of it, but she's persisted. We want a man king. So what does God do? He gives her one. And then the cycle continues, like over and over and over. And God continues to pursue her despite relentless rejection from her. Fast forward to the New Testament, specifically the church age, the age that we live in now. And we get a, a glimpse of the church's actions in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about when the disciples and the apostles were here. I'm talking about that time period from AD 70 until now. The book of Revelation, after a short intro by John, it, it moves right into this, um, this, this piece that has seven letters. And these letters are written to seven churches in existence that was also used to um, explain the progression of the church. So, and, and as this church progresses, there are these things like about, about each period that Jesus calls out. So there are things that certain churches were commended for, and then there were things that they were also condemned for. And so there were some that had both. Actually, most did. There was one that had no condemnations. But then there's this one church at the very end that received no commendation. There was nothing good that she had done. She received a condemnation only. This last church, this last stage of the church age is known as the church of Laodicea. And it is the church, the church age that we live in today. Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And, and I'm reading this portion here for a purpose. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you from my mouth. Another translation says, I will vomit you from my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and have the shame of your nakedness, so that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. You catch this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. People, Jesus is outside the door of the church knocking, relentlessly pursuing us. He wants to come in But we as a whole are shutting him out and saying that sin is okay. Saying that we do not need you. Saying that what we've got inside these walls is good for us, dude. Like, there's no reason for us to leave. Like, we need to watch out for this right here. We need to be like the lady that was dying in the intro. So Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of your church and I knock. Why? The church is no longer focused on him, but on ourselves and what we want. She is no longer focused on him, no longer focused on making disciples. Jesus, full of grace and truth, the very essence of grace and truth, desperately wants to come in and we won't let him. They, we, me, are more concerned about themselves and ourselves than Jesus. And when you care about Jesus, you care about his work. Read the book of James. When you care about Jesus, you care about his work. It is impossible not to. Jesus is in reckless pursuit Despite relentless rejection, bring the taste of transformation back into focus. Phase three. Salvation. He has you. There's no turning back. Salvation and the security of the believer is woven throughout the Bible in both the Old and, New, and the New Testaments. You can find it in the epistles, but in my opinion, like the, the greatest example of this actually comes from the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. So there's, there's so much symbolism here. And, and before I talk about that, like what you have got to know is all of these accounts in the Old Testament are literal accounts that literally happened that people saw. And they wrote, but our God being as sovereign and all powerful and all knowing 
What he did was he used these literal accounts that actually happened in history to foretell of something that would literally happen with real people. And it's amazing. And so this, the wilderness wanderings like tells this story and like, and as you really digest like what is happening here, like you can see this picture that actually points to the faith of believers later in life. So, so let's do this with the mindset of we are looking for this, this phase, phase three of salvation and security, okay? Okay. So Israel's in captivity in Egypt. So this captivity that they are in is symbolic of a lost state, a separated state, a state of sin, okay? So God, through Moses, and man, I'm really like paraphrasing this and, and really dumbing it down, um, but just so for the sake of time. So God, through Moses, delivers Israel from Egypt, Exodus 12. This, this deliverance from Egypt is symbolic of salvation, okay? Israel sins. They come up to the land. God tells Moses, hey, Mo, I want you to pick one man for every tribe, and I want you to send him in the, into the land, the promised land, so that you can see that it truly does flow with milk and honey. Twelve spies go in. They come out. All of these spies, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, give an evil report. There's giants in the land. Yes, it truly does flow with milk and honey, but there's giants in the land, and we became like grasshoppers in their sight, like we do not need to go to the promised land. Because of this evil report, the nation of Israel is forced to wander in the, dis- in, the, in the wilderness, in the desert, for 40 years. And there's symbolism there as well. So Israel is redeemed. The nation of Israel is freed from sin. They come out of Egypt, right? And so in, in their journey from that point of salvation until the promised land, like there's, there's this journey, Right? They are considered aliens in the land. This is symbolic of the believer's journey at the point of salvation until they go home. So we have salvation. And then, and then there's also some symbolism for the security of the believer, which we'll look at now. So again, phase three, salvation. He has you. There's no turning back. So moving from the symbolism of salvation, now we're talking about security. So as they're wandering, like Israel complains of thirst. So God tells Moses, hey, hey Mo, like I hear you, the people are thirsty. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take your staff, you know, the one that you parted the sea with. And what I want you to do is I want you to go to this rock. And so the people can see you. I want you to take your staff and I want you to strike the rock. When you strike the rock, water will pour forth. Okay, so Moses goes to the rock, he strikes it, and water comes out and the people drink. This action, this Moses striking the rock is the symbol of salvation just like Jesus is being struck 
being crucified and the water pouring forth is symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And I want, and I want to look at this, this portion of scripture for a reason. Like, I want you to see something. Turn with me to Exodus 17. We're going to read verse 1 through 6. At the congregation of the people, excuse me, all of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin, interesting, by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? Like, they're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall, here it is, strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Moving right along. Israel complains of thirst again. And then this is where we move from the point of salvation to security. He will never let you go. Numbers 20, 2 through 13. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us to come out of Egypt to bring us up from this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Dude, have you ever had people that complain, like, incessantly in your life? <laughs> Shh. <laughs> um, like, poor Moses, dude. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble your congregation. You and your brother, and you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock. At first he strikes the rock. Now he tells the rock. Another translation says he speaks to the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Tell the rock so they can see to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them, or give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, hear now you rebels. Like, like at this point, like he's, he's had it up to here. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Okay, so know that like Moses is at wit's end, and I'm trying to use church words in here. He is teed off. Is that, is that acceptable? He's fed up. Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock. Now, church, what did God tell him to do? And he struck with his staff 
twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you, Moses, shall not bring this assembly into the land. You, Moses, will not be able to lead your people into the promised land because of this one slip-up into the land that I've given them. These are the waters at Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them he showed himself holy. This seems kind of like over the top towards Moses, does it not? Like, dude, like Moses has done all these things, put up with this people for so long, is leading them in the wilderness for 40 years because of a choice that they made. And dude, and he gets mad and hits the rock instead of talking to it. And because of that, he can't bring him into the land. The reason God told Moses to speak to the rock was for a purpose. Like there was a reason behind it. There was a reason that it was not to be struck. And Moses disobeyed. And we'll talk about this here in a minute. So why was Moses commanded to tell the rock? Why was Moses commanded to speak to the rock so water would come from it? Because once it is struck, symbolic of Jesus being crucified for our sin, the rock, Jesus, cannot be crucified again. How can you be given something again that you already have in your possession? You are secure, church. Jesus saves you and he has you. I don't know, pastor. You just drew that conclusion on your own. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, real quick. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from, oh man, look at that, a spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. The rock is to be struck once and the Holy Spirit is poured out. When you go back to the rock, you speak to it. It's not to be struck again. You are secure. So, so Moses' anger strikes the rock the second time Instead of speaking to it, this is symbolic of the security of the believer. Without the shedding of goals, goals, without the shedding of blood of bulls and goats, there is no remission of sin. Wow, I need a drink of water. Hebrews 9.22. I was on a roll and I dropped the ball. <laughs> so, Moses did a big no-no. Like, Moses did not lose his salvation. He lost an opportunity. But did you know that God cared about Moses so much that it was time for Moses to die? God took him and God himself buried him. So, Israel continues to wander until that evil generation passes and then they, led by Joshua, enter into the promised land, symbolic of us going home. 
we could talk for hours on this. We could go to all of the New Testament references that talk about salvation, that talk about security, but for sake of time, we need to move on. So know this, like he saved you. There is no turning back. You are secure. Bring the taste of transformation back into focus. Phase four. Vision, purpose. So at that point of salvation, as you begin to grow in the Lord, like, like he will give you vision. And at the same time, he will also give you purpose. Now, there is a requirement for, for those things to start coming your way. Because I can tell you, like, I would be like, why am I getting no indication of my vision or no indication of my purpose? Well, friend, I ask you, like, how much time are you spending one-on-one with the Lord? This does not count. I mean, is this important? 100%. But Jesus is more concerned about that one-on-one relationship with you than he is about you warming a chair here. So, he gives you vision. He gives you purpose. So, purpose gives meaning. Vision prompts action. Purpose uses your own words to capture God's common purposes for all disciples Vision is specific and unique to you. Purpose anchors you. Vision evokes awe and releases imagination. Your motivating vision is a picture of God's preferred future. So Jesus' last command for us while he was here on the earth was for us as we go to make disciples and to teach them. This is the one purpose of your life. This is the same purpose of the church. So God is using our temporary time here to make an eternal impact on his kingdom. This is your purpose. This is your purpose. And each of us individually will receive vision from God the Holy Spirit as to how that is to be done. But it's the vision that is crucial. It is the vision that is crucial because without it, the people perish. So he gives us vision. He gives us purpose to all of us that will both impact our family and his church. I have a note here that says, if there's time, and I'm afraid that there's not, I'm going to keep going. So he gives you vision He gives you purpose. Bring the taste of transformation back into focus. Man, there's so much more I want to say, but we got to go. Phase five, provision. Whether it's in your home, whether it's at your church, God will provide you all of your needs exactly at the right time. I'm a recipient of that. And it is... I'll give you one quick example. I am blessed with a wife that spoils me. She makes my lunch every day. So when I wake up in the morning, I open up the fridge, I grab my lunch bag, and I go. On a very, very rare occasion, I will open up the fridge while everyone's asleep, and I'll not see a lunch bag. And I go, oh, I got to go. I'm not late. I, just, I show up early. So I close that fridge. And this is one example. happened many times. This is one specific example. So I was like, the Lord will provide because he's done it before. 
and I close the fridge and I go on to work. I'm sitting there in my office and I see this flashy car pull up that's got spinner center caps. You know what I'm talking about? In other words, the center cap stays the same while the wheel turns. And this guy's got a bag. It's a friend of mine. His name's Ted. He says, how many people you got with you? I, got, I made sausage, egg, and cheese biscuits. How many do you need? I was like, bro, the Lord provideth. <laughs> I did not eat that for breakfast. I put that in the fridge, and I warmed it up later for lunch. But God will provide. That's really like something small and just really cool. It's like, man, he even cares about me eating lunch. I mean, I know I'm about to whittle away. Uh, <laughs> but he's like, you need something healthy today. Sausage, egg, and cheese on a biscuit. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. Oh, my gosh. It really is. It's a cold hot. Um, so whether it's in your home or in your church, God will provide you all of your needs at exactly the right time. He has, and he will always, because he promised, provide for his people. My favorite account, again, is in the wilderness wanderings. I'm sorry, um, but I absolutely love this. So, so Israel, going back to them as they're wandering through the desert, like, these people have to eat, right? So, and I'm sure you all know the story. So what God does for them is every day when they wake up, there's manna everywhere. I call it sweet honey angel bread. And I'm going to get me a piece of the hidden manna, by the way. If you don't know that there's hidden manna, that's fine. More for me. Um, so he provides for them every day. When they wake up and they go and they gather everything that they need, they don't have to work for it. They don't have to earn it. God just provides. And I'm just going to leave it there. There's so much more. Not only that, is show of hands, whoever's here has been in the desert. It is really hot during the day and it's really wet at night. Cold. So they're wandering in this desert for 40 years. Now God shows up. And when his presence shows up, one of two things is manifested. One is either a cloud or two, the other is fire. So what does he do? As they are wandering through the desert, he leads them in the form of a cloud. So they know where to go and they're provided shade. Well, then in the evenings when the sun goes away and the hot turns cold, his presence is manifested with fire. Why? So they can see and so they can stay warm. God is providing for them. They didn't do anything to earn it. He just did it. God always provides for his people. Now, let's go ahead and change it a little bit, like a little more at-home application. Luke 12, 29, 31. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. Don't seek out food. Don't seek out water. Don't seek out clothing. Seek him, and all of those things will be added to you. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Psalm 34, 8 through 10, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. 
for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Pursue him. This is on an individual basis. This is on a family basis. This is on a church basis. We seek him and he will provide us our need. There's a big difference between needs and wants. Just know that God will always provide his people with their needs. He provides for you all you need when you need it. Bring the taste of transformation back into focus. Phase six, warfare. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, God promises to deliver Israel's enemies into her hands. And he's followed through on those promises. So, going back to that group that wandered through the, the wilderness, they are now in the promised land. So, God delivered all of their enemies into their hands. And he said that he would do it, even though some people were scared, but he, always, he also delivered. So, Joshua and Caleb, um, I can't remember, I think, okay, Caleb was 40 years old when he started following Moses, okay? So, he's 40 years old, and this is like 45 years later. They're, um, they're splitting up the land for all the tribes. And there's this one portion of land that nobody wants. Why? Is because it's filled with giants. Nobody wants it. Even though God promised it, bro, like, you just go there, like, I'll deliver your enemies into your hands, okay? Nobody wants this land. Caleb's like, here I am, send me. Like, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take, I don't care that it's filled with giants. So, so Caleb, 85 years old, has the strength of the Lord, and he goes into the land that's filled with giants. And these aren't just, like, large people. These dudes are warriors. And he goes in. Go to David, a man after God's own heart. Around the age of 15, he's out, like, watching his, his father's sheep. And his older brothers are all at the war where Israel is on the battlefield of the Philistines and there's like a, there's a stalemate, like nothing's happening. And so David's father says, hey, um, what I want you to do, I want you to take some bread and some cheese and some milkshakes and I want you to go to the battlefront, you know, like bring an excuse, like give them food so you can find out what's going on and, and tell me how, like tell me how your brothers are doing because I, I really want to know. So David goes there, I mean, he, it, Jews are typically shorter people, and this dude is a teenager. He shows up, and he sees, like, all of this army, like, with weapons and armor and all of this stuff. Now, and he's looking across the field, and you've got all, all, all the armies of the Philistines, and yes, they've got this champion, this giant that's nine feet, nine inches tall. But David knows something. He was, a God after, he was a man after God's own heart. He knew the scriptures. He knew the promises. He knew that God says, listen, you just go and I will deliver your enemies. You just go. And so he says this infamous quote, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Who is he? I'll fight him. I don't care. And Saul's like, oh, dude, if you're going to fight him, like take my armor. He's like, I, I, it's too big. I, I can't wear it. Just... Just give me my sling and my stone. You guys know the story. So David knew the promises. All he had to do was step out in faith. 
So this 15-ish year old boy with a sling and a stone before a giant with armor that weighed more than David, with a spear that towered over David, with a sword that was probably bigger than David. He stands there and he kills him with a rock. A rock. You know, we give credit to David killing Goliath, but it was God through him that delivered that giant into his hands. He says, you show up. The New Testament, moving right along. Talking about warfare again and how the Lord fights for us and how the battle belongs to him. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but not kill, cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. I'm not going to go all through this, so you could just kind of scroll through this. This is the armor of God. Every single piece of the armor, the helmet, the sword, the breastplate, the shoes, everything points to Jesus. Folks, you put him on and he fights for you. John 16, 33, and I'm done with the verses for this portion here. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. I guarantee it. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The accounts of God fighting our battles are plastered all throughout the scriptures. Rest assured, when you step out faith, war is going to come. I guarantee it. But know this. Battle belongs to him, for the Lord is a warrior. Step out in faith. Like Adam said last week, step out in faith, because without it, it's impossible to please him. So stepping out in faith pleases him. Let him protect you. Let him fight for you. So phase six, he fights for you as you focus on him and step out in faith. Bring the taste of transformation back into focus. Finally, phase seven. It's getting really speed up here. The cycle comes full circle. Just real quick as I'm putting this together, and I'm already like halfway through putting this together, um, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Does anybody know what the number of perfection is? I'm not trying to say my sermon is perfect, but... I'm not, but I just thought that this was interesting. What is the number of perfection? Thank you. I'm sitting there looking, oh my, I've got this, this process. It's got seven phases. And not only that, how many days of creation are there? Seven. But on the seventh day, what did God do? This is cool. So you've got this process. All of these different phases, beginning with the remedy. The seventh phase is remedy repeat where it's God using you to save the life of another. And if you study the book of Hebrews at all, you'll see that there's this thing called Sabbath rest. 
There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So as you're enjoying him resting, what is he doing you? He is using you to save another. Anyway, I just, man, that is so cool. So phase seven, remedy, repeat. He creates a remedy for the next person using you before that person ever knows that there's a disease. The cycle comes full circle. And I'm telling you, like, if, if you're here today, like, the cycle is nearly complete in you. You have been saved. You have experienced God so that he might use you to be the remedy for another person. Hear me, church, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And hear me on this verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Say it with me. For good works, which God prepared, prepared when? Beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, this is phase seven where we are enjoying him and we are walking out the work that he has for us as we are enjoying him and it is saving somebody else. He creates a remedy for the next person using you before there is a disease. Bring the taste of transformation back into focus. So this process, this cycle, it has purpose. Its purpose was to seek and to save you. So that you can, in turn, allow God to use you as you enjoy him to seek and to save another. Are are you beginning to see it? This picture of Jesus pursuing the one that needs to be saved. Can you see this picture coming back into focus? We were not meant to meet meet Jesus and then sit on that light that he gave us. We were meant to let his light shine to spread the gospel, the good news of the gospel, wherever he leads us. He has given us vision. He has given us purpose in a town not far from here. It is up to us to take that step out in faith. He leaves the 99 for the one. This is Jesus pursuing the one. Matthew 18, 10 through 13. Jesus speaking, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, And one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones 
should perish. He leaves the 99 for the one. Believers, followers of Christ, in the grand scheme of things, is it worth the work for the one? If we spend and invest in Metropolis and only one person comes to know Jesus, the question of whether or not it's worth it is directly proportional to how close that person is to you. The entire conversation changes if it's your friend, if it's your spouse, or if it's your child. And let's say that someone from rest becomes a missionary to Metropolis, and in doing that, their child or spouse or friend from Paducah sees that and comes to know Jesus. Collateral salvation, worth every minute and every dollar spent. If we can begin to see it that way in that vision, it's no longer a burden of I have to. It is an opportunity of I get to. Pursue the one. Pursue the one. Pursue the one. Now I want to change my um, addressing from the believer to those that are here that are not. If you are lost, and I'm telling you, if you are not 100% sure that Jesus is coming back from you, you need to listen to me right now. This isn't for any kind of glory for me. It's not any kind of glory for rest. You are the one. You are the one that's sitting here today. Well, I have a question. Is it, is it you, the one that is wandering? Is it you, the one that has gone astray? Like, like I'm, I'm being very, very real right now. Like, hear this. I'm going to go over this, this process again, this life cycle again, and see if this is speaking to you. Remedy. Like, Jesus created a remedy for you before you knew that you were sick. And after making that remedy, he begins pursuing you with a relentless pursuit in spite of your constant rejection, still pursuing you. Salvation, he provides salvation. He wants to save you. And once he saves you, brother, sister, he will hold you and he will never let you go. Ever. He is pursuing the one. And once he has you, he wants to give you vision. He wants to give you purpose. Provision. You will go from having to figure this thing out on your own to having God on your side so he can provide for you while you enjoy him. 
warfare. He will fight your battle for you because you belong to him. And finally, he will use a person like you to be the remedy for somebody else.